welcome to Hey Hey Agave. Today we are joined by Assis Cortez. Assis, so nice to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm glad I'm here. We're so happy that you're here. Gabrielle, you're with us as well. Yes, this has been a, a long time meeting in the waiting. <laughs> yeah, I feel like... Um, you know, Gabrielle and I have wanted to have you on for a long time, but we also have felt like we need to be prepared. <laughs> so um, I feel like, you know, with 21 podcasts under our belt and a lot of research into your background, I hope that we're ready to talk to you, Assis. So everybody should know who you are, but if there are some listeners that aren't familiar with you, your family, and your work. Um, you are a sixth generation from a mezcal producing and maguey cultivating Zapoteco family from Matatlan, Oaxaca. Yes. And there's a lot to be said about just that introduction, I would say. Um, something that we have admired about you um, for a very long time it has been in every mezcal project that you've been involved in, it's been your dedication to education, uh, teaching people about the heritage and culture of mezcal. So I hope that we have a chance to really go into um, how and why you choose to do that today. Of course. So I figured that we could start the conversation. Um, if you wouldn't mind, I think it'll be really interesting for our listeners to hear your perspective of what it was like in Matatlan for maybe your grandparents and your father, um, you know, as they were producing mezcal, what the community was like, what the culture of mezcal was like. Um, so can you give us a little bit about that? Yes, of course. Uh... Before everything, thanks, Sabrina and Gabriel. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm very happy to can have a conversation with you guys. And yes, I can start to talk about my family in Matatlan. Uh, basically, uh, all my whole family have been doing mezcal all their life uh, in many different generations, uh, not just my dad's side, but also my mom's side. And what I got from many stories coming from my parents, my grandparents, from uncles and friends and cousins, it's that before, back in the day, uh, my family, they used to produce very small amounts of mezcal uh, to sell in the local, in the local market, in the same village, in some villages around. And the production was really small, but at the same time, they used to be very, very careful with what they was doing as a as a something to want as a something that they want to share with with the best uh, heart or the best feelings um, in, in in mezcal. So, uh, if we back to 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 the story that we have in in my dad's family, there is some uh, perspective. I would say there is some runes that we don't know exactly where they come from or when they actually started to produce mezcal in, in that runes in Matatlan. But the, the latest we have is from the 80s, 40s, when my grandfather's great-grandfather used to produce mezcal there. And, and in this place, I remember since a kid used to walk there sometimes with my family. It's a beautiful place. It's a really beautiful place on the mountains. 
like only 15 minutes outside the village in Matatlan, where it was actually the pit, the place where they used to roast the agave. It was a very small pit. It was already covered with earth and herbs, but I remember that I can actually see the stones around and everything around and a beautiful tree there with a really beautiful energy and, and that space every time that I, I've been there in, in that space. And then on the side, you can actually still see the big, big stones where in these stones was still the holes where they're used to ferment. There are five holes in the, in the big stones uh, that they used, they used to use it as uh, fermentation tanks. So they were carved stones. Were they in the ground or were they above ground? Above ground, because you okay. literally see that on the beginning of the hill. So this big hill is basically a hill of stones, of rocks, big rocks. So you, you, can, you can actually go and, and stop there and see it right on your feet. And right on the other side, under those, those areas, uh, you can see a, a, a manantial, a spring water, where the water just coming from the stones and, 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 and the space there, just creating a beautiful water. They actually skip it in a, in a pila, in, in a tank now, today. But you can see the canyon as well, where the water used to come and how they used to deal with everything to produce that mezcales. So the story that I have is that in that days, Miguel Cortez was the, the, the sir, my, my ancestor, who was making mezcal in that place. And then on the other side of that same mountain that we actually call Talgil Rain, that means blood mountain, blood mountain, is another spot very similar with the big stones, with the hole as well, where my other family used to produce mezcal, my mom's family. Hernandez. Hernandez, yeah. And that comes from like four or five generations behind us as well. So we used to play there as a kids when I was uh, with my cousins. We used to go, we used to go there as a like picnic day on weekends and bringing food and coffee and, and, and stay there with my mom and her brothers and sisters and my grandmother. It, it, it was just something beautiful to be connected with those spaces. Even they, they already not producing mezcal anymore in those times, but we have that opportunity to grow up there and feeling that beautiful energy that was just there and still there. Every time I'm going to those different spots, it just fit my my spirit, my energy. It just I just feel like everything comes up, and and I just got all that charge. Asis, what what is the time that you're talking about in uh, from your grandfather and great grandfather times? Is nine the nine, early 1900s or you know late 1800s? Uh, after many questions and research that we was doing with my dad's family. We found out that that probably was in the 80s, 40s, so uh, around 180 years ago. Yes. And your your father's side of the family have been producing pretty consistently all the way through, or have there been pauses where maybe you know there was a generation that didn't really produce? They were I don't know doing more farming cultivation. Like how how does it look? 
I would say that in all the story of mezcal, there has always been uh, different, very hard times in, in, in all these years. So my, uh, my ancestor Miguel has his son, Gregorio, Gregorio Cortez, who uh, the story says that he didn't really follow all the production like 100%, but his son, who was uh, Francisco Cortez, it's my great-grandfather, he basically moved to the, to the center of the village of Santiago Matatlán, where he, uh, he, he, he has his family, his house, it is right in the center, and right on the back of this house, he has a palenque where, where my grandfather, Jose, and his brother, who, who passed away, uh, Miguel Cortez, they used to produce mezcal, and they used to have this connection with my great-grandfather, Francisco. So basically, everything was there. My grandfather told me that when he was uh, very, very young, he used to work in, in some, or he used to rent sometimes palenques because it was not easy to have a, a proper one. But with the time, he has opportunity to have a palenque with his brother and, and my, my great-grandfather. But even that, he was always working on the fields as well. He was always be available to work on the, on the fields, planting agaves, and not just agaves, but also corn, beans, and mezcal in my family, it's been always a part of the culture, a very part of the culture, the traditions, but it's also something that they had very, very high connected in their life. It is more than just a job, or it is more than just a work. It is something that they've been learning from generations, and, and by, by that learning, they've been basically taking that as a part of the style life that we have in the in the town was this was this a supplemental activity or was this a uh, a full-on that's all we do activity because there's we have here a few different stories where mezcal making was always a it was part of a, a, a numerous amount of different things that people will do either uh commercial either commerce or planting or by like tending to the to the field but Mezcal in those times it was not a full time production. It was something that it was seasonal too, right? It yes, it depends like the, the families, it depends like the the different locations and, and everything that is around, of course. But talking about my, my dad's family, uh, my grandfather it was a point when my grandfather was focused as a first uh, work in mezcal production okay. and in agave plantation. And his brother, Miguel Cortez, was more focused and sell that mezcal that he was producing. Even my uncle was also part-time producing. He was more focused in going around looking to sell that mezcal in different villages or different cities around Matatlan. In the, in the same time that my grandfather was more focused on the production. So yes, you're right. It it always been different roles in, in in the families, yeah. And that and that will open the 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 question, and probably for you to tell us a little bit, what was a route? How how did it look for the route of mezcal in inside the communities, in sound the different towns? Like I remember you telling um, 
a really cool story about your grandfather having this specific route of going around the different towns and selling their mezcal. Yes. So for the stories that I have from my family, um, it was in the 60s, 70s, and late 70s. It was a really great time for them as a mezcaleros because I think that the word successful can mean different things or can go in different ways. But for them, it was successful because they was happy. They was The families was together. Everybody was busy. Everybody used to have a job. Everybody was doing the things that they loved to do. In this case, in my family, they was happy because they was producing mezcal. They having a job all the time. They always being available to work in the fields, but also in the palenque. And for what I got with my grand, with my father as well, he says that when he was seven, uh, 13 years old, my grandfather asked him to, if he want to go to the school. My, grand, my father went to the school at, at 13 years old at the, at the middle school only one week. And then he decided to, to stop and say, like, no, you, you have a lot of work. I want to help. I want to just go and work with you because I, I, I can see that you need help. So my, my grandfather was like, yes, if you are not going to the school, you are going to work. That's the only option you have. So <laughs> he, is, he went straight to work with my grandfather on the fields and in the Palenque since he was 13 years old. And, and that was something, for what I got, it was something uh, more common in the village by, in those times. And he was working hard with my grandfather because it was a lot of work. I had stories when they say that there was people waiting in the town for the product to be distilled because there was none in the stock. So there was people just waiting like, okay, I'm waiting here. Like if, if it's going to be ready in, to, tonight, I'm going to be in the Palenque drinking some other mezcales with you during I'm waiting for my five liters <laughs> or 10 liters. That, that's called high demand. <laughs> it was a high demand. Yes. It was a really great high demand. So in those times, also, everybody used to have their own roots. It was a lot of respect around. It was a lot of more um, organize, organized in the way of like everybody used to play the role. And it was also a lot of respect in the way that people was selling 100% mezcal. And just seeing my mom's family back in those days, my other grandfather used to have the other way to sell mezcal, the other channels to sell mezcal. That was completely different to the, to, the, to the roads where my dad's family used to sell mezcal. But both families was producing mezcal in their own style, in their own way, and very active. Uh, I, I had stories from them saying that they used to produce mezcal the 365 days of the year, and sometimes even three turns of the day because it was a high demand. There was a high demand, so they used wow. to have a lot of people uh, in, in Matatlan from different villages from outside Matatlan working because it was a high demand. Did they have multiple palenques or like how, how much volume were they putting out per distillation at that point? That is something really nice, a uh, really good question. Most people used to have a work because most people used to have their own palenque. So there was hundreds of palenques, and most of the palenques there was a small. So everybody used to have the capacity to say, okay, I, I, I have my production and I can sell my production. 
same as my neighbor, same, same as my cousin, same as my family. So everybody used to have a very small palenque. The biggest palenques in those days was two copper steels or three copper steels was something like, wow, that's a huge palenque. One copper steel was something like normal in, in average. But also, I, I remember like, I have an image in my mind when I was like probably around four years old, uh, I came to the city with my, my parents and I remember back to the town, to Matatlan, right in the center of the town, in the last hill, you can see all the village right there in front of you. So for one reason, I remember being on the front of the bus and, and the bus with all this window, like I was just waiting to go out the bus with my parents. And that image just is just something that I catch because I remember seeing like the whole town full of like smoky places, like hundreds of smoking areas. It was like a like a big uh, collaborative work happening in front of you. You know, everybody doing their own part. Everybody was doing mezcal. Yes, everybody was or roasting agave or distilling mezcal. And it was something that it was just wow. Like how, how old were you when you remember seeing that? It was around four years old. It was around four years old. Okay. But so all, this is this is early nineties, right? Very early, probably in the in the ninety. Yeah, exactly. Pre pre nom pre do pre all of that. Yes. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. And all my memories from from when I was a child, it was just all the time smelling all all what mezcal represents for me, like all that smoky, all that sugars, all that agave, all that aromas was everywhere in the town, like all these that just in, in, in my memories. So, so for what I got from my family as well is that it was a really, really good time. Everybody was happy. Everybody was doing their job. And, and something happens in the, in the late 80s. Something happens that they didn't really see it come. They didn't really prepare for that. But the thing is that some other people start to, to adulterate mezcal. Some other mm. people start to sell adulterate mezcal in the same local market where mezcaleros were selling their products. For and cheaper price. Because these people just start to adulterate mezcal. They start to sell it more, more, more cheaper than what mezcal was in those times. Of course, mezcaleros didn't see it come. They didn't really, it was not the same social media that we have today or the same communication ways that we have today. Back in those days, in that village, with no cell phones, with no uh, TV or like, you know, uh, they didn't see it. It just started. It started in one point, little by little, that adulterate product that they used to call it mezcal because it was no regulations they just start to put it in the same local market. Will you oh. say will you say that it, this this event started to overtake the market? With 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 this this, this adulteration like people were like of course it's bad quality people are not going to like it. Of course this is not going to happen like but at the same time like if you come with your mezcal and somebody already purchased and spend the money that they was allocated for your mezcal buying so you're out of the game at that point it was not like that because 
because we didn't have the way to communicate and the way to actually get what was happening at the moment. It took probably, I would say it took like 10 years to Mescaleros mm -hmm. to realize what actually was happening. You know, uh, it probably can be five years, but I would say 10 years I was seeing how uh, little by little the people who was selling the mezcal was coming and say, hey, I found another mezcal that was cheaper. Why, why your mezcal is still at the same price? And it was questions like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, wh what's going on? Just check the quality. Yes, that was the first thing, right? But also, uh, my grandfather used to have, a, in, in, in the 90s, he, he used to have his own road in, in four or five different villages, very near to Matatlan, where he used to have his clients for many, 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 many years, where he used to sell every Monday. Every Monday, my grandfather and my grandmother, they used to prepare their truck full of mezcal. My grandmother used to sell uh, some jewelry and some clothes, some things. Then my grandfather used to go with full of mezcal in the truck in, in that day. And every week, it was like, somebody selling the mezcal more cheap. Somebody mm -hmm. comes from Atatlan to sell the mezcal more cheap. Somebody, we sell less than last week. And, and little by little in years, that was the story. And of course, because the mezcalero didn't really prepare for that, most of them was normally working on the fields, planting agaves, working on the production. But little by little, the sales was not as before with the high demand that they used to have. So they start to organize. They start to trying to find the, what was happening. But in those days, the government didn't really want to give them the attention. Because the mezcal in those days, even was high demand, the mezcal was not representing absolutely nothing for the government. Because back in those days, well, like they didn't have that school to pay all the taxes or pay everything or regulations. It was basically something that was more in the villages as a part of a culture as that. It was like a, a closed economic structure within the community. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of course, most of the mezcaleros, they didn't have a brand. There was a couple brands, yes. There was a couple brands that started like in the 60s, then in the 70s, then in the 80s. But most mezcaleros, as my family, they didn't have a, a brand to really represent what they was doing. Uh, people used to know their mezcales because the mezcalero. Because by the, Exactly. And in, in those times, they didn't sell outside of the community or outside of the state of Oaxaca? Like, how did that work? They used to, my grandfather used to have his own route where he used to sell direct to his clients, his uh, friends in different villages outside Matatlan. But there was some clients that they used to come to Matatlan to pick up 200 liters or 300 or 1,000 liters and bring them to another different states. And they mm -hmm. used to do that. Yes. Everything so, was in that way. I, I, I have a question. When you're talking about, you know, somebody comes and sells cheaper mezcal. Somebody comes and uh, offers you a different product that is not the same quality. Somebody, towns are little. People know each other. 
you seem it seems that Matatlan was a very tight community. They they knew a little bit of what was happening and who was making this. And 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 I think the question goes more to they knew how they were making the cheap version of this liquid because they couldn't call it mezcal. So that must be an enervating, highly annoying situation where you know that your neighbor, that you know them for many generations, is doing a shitty product. Sorry, the Spanish. Uh, and and then how do you tackle this? You know, like how can you organize or how can you do something? Maybe not to stop him because you you're never gonna be able to stop somebody to do whatever they want to do in that kind of matter, but. Is is this when when Matatlan gets a little more organized? Is this when the the true mescaleros are like we need to do something? What what happens? Yeah, uh, of course you're right. Uh, little by little, with the years, um, my dad and, and my family they they realize who was making that, what exactly was happening, and but in the end, I think that's something that I learned from from my family and especially from my dad is to have respect. Even yes. somebody is doing something wrong and something that actually is affecting everybody else, there is respect and, and he has to do his best. My, my dad has to do his best in that case. He didn't went to, to, to say, oh, or point, these guys are doing this or that. He was just more like, okay, we have to find what to do or how to survive in this situation because what happens is that by, by late 90s, there was already not just the people who started in the beginning. There was already probably hundreds of people doing the same thing. Like, oof. Yeah. Oof, oof, oof. And uh, this is around the time when you're, you're getting older, right? Your, your, your education is advancing, maybe right before you go to college, um, let's say. And so you're witnessing all of this happening around you. Exactly. I... When I was a, a very a child, a very small kid, I remember all my most of my experience was coming back from the school, going straight to the Palenque, going to visit my my uncles and and being playing with my cousins in the other Palenques. So the, being in Palenques was something very 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 strong and common in my life. So just by playing there, helping my dad bringing the small wood on on, on inside or cleaning the tank fermentations, or like just always being related with that. And little by little seeing that uh, that move, it really affects us very direct because I've been seeing my dad, how he was dealing with that situation, uh, losing the opportunity to give a job, losing the opportunity to, to still producing his own agaves that he was planted for many years, and the deals that he used to have with other magalleros, he was dealing with that situation as well because all of them used to come to the house and say, hey, the agaves is ready mature. We already cut the quiotes. They're already ready to harvest. And my dad was dealing with that situation to say, yes, I also have my agaves, but I cannot produce anymore because I have thousands of liters on the stock that I produced in the last year and two years, and nobody is buying and the people who want to buy it want to pay me nothing. And nobody, no, nobody's buying. Well, people are buying shitty material, but nobody's buying and paying for the quality and the work and the effort that this requires. Yeah, so it's, it's it's a horrendous situation where the, you know, and he, I, you know, just hearing you saying this is 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 such a formative 
life experience because you're seeing it in front of you. It affects your family directly. It's not something that somebody told you. Like it did affect your family directly to the point that as an adult and 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 you know talking to Asis Cortez in 2020, I can tell where your mind is and how this will affect any other thought that you have in, in your way of working. You know? Yes. It's pretty amazing. Yes, it was it was many years of that until 2002 when my dad finally decided to he didn't really decide it was not an option. He basically very sadly stopped to produce mezcal. Mm. He very sadly didn't have the option to keep doing mezcal. He was dealing with that many years looking the way to can really resist to the situation because what happens with all this adulterate mezcal that was in the market and most of them, they didn't really even was uh, 1% of agave, probably. Um, but they, all those products were selling as mezcal. It affects so big that all the consumers and all the buyers, they're trying to pay that price of that product to the mezcaleros. Because this, this just came to be something that was so strong, so strong. that the It whole, got out of control. Exactly. went out of control. And then by early 2000, they did a bad reputation, not just for the category, but also for the people, also for Matatlan, for the Colula, for the Oaxaca. Yeah. And people start to talk about mezcalas as something really cheap, something for like really poor people, something that can kill you, that make you blank. Like, you know, like all these stories that but, start to come but, up. But you know what, Aziz? The stories were kind of scary truth if you're drinking adulterated anything and who knows what they use hopefully they were using at least sugar cane but who knows what they actually were using and the levels on the chemical aspects and all these kind of things like there was i remember that those stories like i grew up i grew up, you know we're not that far apart in in age we probably five ten years around but i i didn't grow up drinking mezcal in mexico city Yes, you're, and, you're you know it was it was it was whiskey and rum and you know bigger brands and things like that. Uh, I was telling Sabrina that I have this this memory of going in in having this this uh, school trip to Oaxaca, and, and 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 basically having the first encounter with mezcal as a as a young adult. Uh, with school and and seeing these things like what what is this? This looks such, it's it's. It didn't make sense because nobody teach you that this exists. So the other thing that I wanted to say when you were saying about, you know, people demanding the price and demanding a, a shitty product in some form, there was there's we we have come so far ahead with education of the category, and we have you have done such an amazing job of of educating and 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 indoctrinating if you want to call it like this into the cult of mezcal to people to understand really what what this is about that is not just a drink that it comes with collaboration that it comes with art that it comes with with uh, the the years and years and generations of of life put into this is is really interesting i think i think you know hearing the whole story it looks it looks really awesome it, it looks it looks like that now. <laughs> it looks but, like yeah. that now. What a long road to get there. I, I think this is a really good time for me to ask you. Um, so having 
learned about this history a little bit, knowing the tumultuousness of what the early 2000s were for your father and the really, really difficult choice he had to make to stop producing at that point. Um, how did you make the decision uh, to pursue the career in design coming from the family history that you come from? Um, can you explain to us a little bit about that choice that you made? Yes. Uh, I think it was, I, since I remember, since, since I was a kid, I used to like uh, always to draw and to paint. And even I didn't have art in the school like that, or, or nobody in my family was like, um, kind of introduced me to art. I, I just, I just have that, like, I don't know, like how you to say, but like, uh, hungry to do something, you know, like I, I just want to paint. I just want to draw. I was doing that. And I remember since I was a kid, like just by the cartoons and the TV, I was creating my own, uh, how is it, personajes? Yeah, your old characters. The, my own characters. I was creating my own characters. I was creating, like, stories with that. And, and yeah, like, all the elementary school, I remember just to, I used to change those draws that I used to do by, uh, by marbles. The, my, my friends used to give me marbles because I used to do draws for them. And, so you were, you were in commerce early on. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> Uh, my, my business ends when the elementary school buy their first copy machine, and then they start to do <laughs> copies from my, my no, my and house. then and you know you have your own problem of conejo happening to you exactly. because you were doing the original drawing and somebody was doing shitty photocopies of your drawing. <laughs> exactly, that happens to me as well. So anyway, you know, what, a, what a beautiful analogy. <laughs> <laughs> it was something really beautiful for me. It, I was growing up with that. Uh, I used to like it a lot. I used to use like uh, the colors mapita, the, the 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 colors from the school, and like the cartoon watercolor. Used to use everything that I used to have and, and trying to paint and do that. So when everything started to happen in and I was uh, probably in the end of the elementary school, eleven years old, ten, eleven years old, because of the conejo, as we call it, to this adulterate product. Uh, we call it conejo because it's the translation of rabbit and because they basically say, oh, that product is ruining so fast everywhere. That's why they call it conejo. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, that really affects us in many different ways, uh, not just as a, as a mezcalero, but as a family. Because, because of that, a lot of members of families, they start to emigrate to Mexico City, to, to LA, there was a big community. There's still a big community of people from Atatlan in LA. And most people start to emigrate because they lost their job, they lost the work. There was no more work in the town. And the news that I had when I was growing up at 11, 12, 13 years old was that another friend left with his family, another friend left. I was losing all my friends little by little, little by little. So that was the conversations with my cousins and with my friends. Every time that we was having like what we should to do, we should to left as well, we should to go as well, to look for something to do, to help the family. It was a conversation that happened between friends. And I was very lucky that my parents, even they had a really bad situation, but he, them and my, and my uncles and everybody and my aunts, uh, I was very close to them as a, as a the first grandson. So they was always 
trying to support me and say, Aziz, you have to go to the school, you study, study something, go to school. It's much better to go to school than just going to, to the States as illegal because it was not another way, it was as illegal. So I lost a lot of friends moving to LA as illegal, uh, cousins, uncles, a lot of members of my family, they went there. My dad tried it twice as well. He went for a couple months and back and he was not happy with. And, and because of that, I was in the middle of the situation of what to do. If I have to go, because there was no more work to do, I didn't have that chance that my dad has when he was 13 and say, okay, I'm just going to work with my dad because we have a lot of work. In my case, it was totally different. I cannot take that decision because my dad doesn't have work. My dad doesn't have that opportunity. And I cannot really follow that. So they pushed me to the school. They pushed me to the school. And even it was hard. I was believing in them. And I did it. I went to the college. And I was not really happy with my college situation because I was doing something to follow like engineer. My dad was trying to put my put it in my mind, like, you need to be an engineer. You, you have to be an engineer. There is work in engineer. He was just trying to help me to find something where I can find a job in the future. But I was like, no, I like art. That art is what I want to study. You know, like, I want art. And they, they, they didn't really support that part of me. They, they was thinking that art was nothing, or it was not going to help us. So they told me, like, no, right? you're crazy. <laughs> you, why are you going to study art? That's, that's not good. <laughs> let's, let's, let's make an effort to say that the three of us that we're talking right now, we all have to go through that kind of uh, interesting conversation in our families. Uh, Sabrina, probably the least. The least, yeah. They have, like, Gabrielle, they, your story mimics Assis's, like... Like, I'm, I'm listening to you talking, and I'm just smiling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gabrielle's father was an engineer and and very much expected him to follow in his footsteps. And when he learned that his son wanted to study art, you can only imagine. There was there was support, but it was it was a a, a complicated concept for them because, as you said, you know, in your case, family uh, tradition was stopped, and therefore there was a certain panic of being. Like, what is my son going to do, right? In in my case, probably was the other way around. My dad was the first generation that has on his family a full uh, university education and, and bringing a completely set of tools for the family that is basically what you and I became at the end. Like, he was able to see that that change in his life uh, just opened a completely different Mexican uh, life life form because you know and he's in mexico city don't re- like he's not he's not even close to have this conversation with you and thinking you're in oaxaca in the early 90s early 2000s when the economy is kind of flickery you have a problem with you know the the the, the ancestral way of living of your of your people and the the production is not being even considered something that you should follow and have the town left to the states or other con- or another city. So, man, like the decision of of having and follow your passion of graphic graphic design and art is not just applaudable. It's also, I think, it, it's is a testimony of the kind of person that you are of uh, how you persevere in in your projects. Definitely, I, yeah. I would also ask, like, um, what university did you attend? 
Yeah, I went to a Universidad Mesoamericana uh, here in Oaxaca City. So I actually went to uh, to the Tecnológico de, de Oaxaca uh, to to look for to have the engineer everything, but I cannot remember exactly the day, but I remember exactly the place and what happens in that moment. I was waiting for the bus. I was in a bus station in the city to go into Matatlán. And I, I was looking this paper, like moving on the, on the side of the bus station. And then I just went close to this paper and I read it. And the thing that tracked me was that it was a, a, a paper that says, Licenciatura en Diseño Gráfico. But the things that tracked me was like, a, okay, the materials or what is you're going to learn is going to be a story of the art and art in illustration and, and then a lot of more things. But I was just like, okay, this says Licenciatura. This is what I'm going to do. I'm still going to be a licenciado. It's all like, fine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, I backed that day to, to my town in those days, I used to work in a cyber cafe. It was so popular in those days. And I think it was the, the only cyber cafe in my town, in my hometown. And it was owned by my uncle, who, who is my, my dad's brother. So I was working there since he opened it. And, and that gave me the opportunity to have a computer in charge of the business, but also making my homework and, and have yes. access to internet. So I remember the back to, to that and, and I was looking for, okay, what is graphic design? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't have that before or, or that help before. So I went straight to look at, and I found out there was a lot of things that I, I, I kind of like didn't know, but kind of like trapped me. And, and then I started looking for a school to the, in Oaxaca. But with a lot of research, I found that there was not graphic design in any public school in Oaxaca. And back in those days, we didn't have the, 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 the situation or the money situation to can help the, to go in a private school. So anyway, it was like, oh, it's not going to be easy. So I was just dealing with that, talking with my family. I, I didn't really tell them it straight, I'm going to be licenciado in diseño gráfico. I just told them I'm going to be licenciado in something that is only in this <laughs> school. And I was looking and this, is, this school is the only one in the city that had, they had it. And, and it's private and we have to pay this much mm. and blah, blah, blah. So in the end, my family supported me. Uh, my uncles, my aunts, my, my parents, everybody was like, okay, if that's what you want to do, we're going to support you. You, you, you can do it, like, you have, we have your back, but in the same time, I was with a big responsibility, and, and I did it. Asis, what was your experience um, at once you, you know, you were accepted into the program? What was your experience overall for, for the degree? It was wonderful. It's, I mean, so far, but in those days, it was like, uh, I, was, I was living a dream, because since the beginning, they start to. I went to the school for first time. It, it was also another different experience that I I, I I had in those times because I grew up in a in a town that is Zapotec. We are Zapotecas, and my my whole family their first language is Zapotec, and the sen, the second language is Spanish. So, but because because of that, they used to have a lot of um, racism in the city in Oaxaca. And that's crazy, Racism. but that, that's yeah. what happened. 
So that's Mexico. There's that's racism Mexico, yeah. with any, yeah. So because of that, that actually also I had part of that when I was in the in the middle school and the when I was in the college and all that. I, I used to have part of that as well. Like, and I didn't really understand. And I was like, what's going on? Like, we, we are in Oaxaca. But anyway, so when I was in the in a in a university studying graphic design, everything just changed because for all the people who was studying with me. It was a, a totally different mind. It was a totally different um, aware. And and when I was telling them that I was from Matatlan and all that, everybody was like, "Wow, that that's great! Like, how how is everything there? Like, you know, like it, it was totally different energy." But at the same time, I was studying something that I didn't know existed, but it was something that I really, really love. I really, really start to to love. So for me, the, the the four years of the school, it was one of the most fun and beautiful time that I have. It, it was just everything happening. I don't know the word for Becca. I found a Becca at at the, at the second semester, and that helped me a lot in all the time because with that I just can really don't be a lot of boring about the money, and it was just something that I was doing because I like it a lot. Becca's a scholarship. Scholarship, okay. Yeah, you got a scholarship. I got a scholarship. I got uh, to keep my, my my numbers and everything, my score. And yeah. but that, that was easy. That was easy because I just did a lot of things that I really enjoy a lot. And with no idea, when I was doing that, my dad, my mom, and myself, we was thinking that with this, it's gonna be something different. Actually, I remember one day after probably. I would say six, seven months in the school. I remember one day that my mom and my dad asked me straight to me, "Okay, so can you explain your? Can you explain us what, what you exactly doing? you're studying? <laughs> what, what you are going to do when you're going to finish this? It's going to be work for you." <laughs> because they was oh, watching God. me doing like uh, sketches and things, and they was like, "What are you but, doing?" You know? They're like, but "This also, is really nice work, but how are you going to make none, a living from this?" But you know, so also, Sabrina, Aziz has been doing drawings all his life, so it's like, okay, so now you actually have to pay to do what you actually do all your life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I remember my answer was like, "I I love what I'm doing." I have no idea if I, it's going to be work for me when I'm going to finish this. I have to be sincere. I don't, I don't know yet, but I, I will look for that. No worries. My point of this conversation is that I didn't really get that with this, actually, it's going to bring me back to Mezcal. You know, I was totally in another different situation. I was thinking in something different. I was trying to look for some other options. I was like, I, I almost forget what mezcal was. Even like uh, in all the parties that I used to have with my friends, every time I used to bring five liters of mezcal or 10 liters of mezcal because in, in the house of my parents used to be more mezcal than water to drink. It was, <laughs> seriously, it was like containers of mezcal. So it was easy just to take five liters or 10 liters and bring it. And even like I always was with mezcal in hands and drinking mezcal with my friends in Matatlan. But in that time, most people was like, why are you drinking that as is? Like, we have absolute vodka here. Come on, stop drinking that. Drink this. Or we have this. Like, you know, like, always. I, I was dealing with that all the time. I was like, no, like, this is good mezcal. 
no, we don't like mezcal. You know, this is really bad. So but like, he, no, he, no, no, this is good. <laughs> but funny enough that people would not even try it. It was more of the just the stigma of the social implications of drinking something that it was for the poor or for the for the town. Like it, it was not even the taste because to be honest, we do we do it right now. You do a comparison of different liquors and you taste side by side and they're they're different beasts, period. There's there's not even a comparison on 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 what you're doing. It's a preference. Mm -hmm. But at that time it's like, oh, you're drinking that, then you are so there's there's an association that it was horribly mistaken. Uh, for many, many generations. So everything that we're talking about right now um, that we all have in common, um, this education of art and, and art practice, and something that Gabrielle and I have been thinking a lot about lately is the idea of collaboration as an art form itself. And from what I understand in my conversations with um, friends growing up in Mexico, in rural Oaxaca specifically, the idea of collaboration is a cultural one, uh, whereas I would say for the states, it we're, we're kind of transitioned more to individuality. Um, and so when you pursue a career that teaches you collaboration as an essential critical tool, um, I think that that influences all of us. And it got it got us thinking about how mezcal is a great collaboration. Um, that includes many different people to be able to produce the spirit, to be able to educate about the heritage and the culture that surrounds it. That being said, um, you've made your work life around this, Assis, and so I think it would be really helpful for the next part of our conversation if I just give some of our listeners that aren't as familiar with you as we are a little bit of background about all the projects and brands that you've been involved in with your family. So if you guys will just uh, give me the pleasure of your ears for a few minutes, I'm going to read down my list of uh, basically your CV, Assis, okay? Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I have um, Casa de Cortez, which was the first project of your family, started in 2007 with your father, Valentin, along with his brother, Rolando, and you. Um, and this brand was all estate-grown agave, basically a larger volume project with aged offerings. And then we transition into Nuestra Soledad, which is a brand that you guys created with six different expressions of mezcal from six different regions of Oaxaca, all Espadín. And then we go into El Jogorio, which were um, very small production bottlings made with wild agaves, uh, around 16 different families working in 10 different regions of Oaxaca. And then we transition to the next project, which is Orajen Raiz, which um, I find really interesting because uh, it's a collaboration outside of the family where you partnered with um, Bildo uh, Saravia. Is that how you say his last name? Yes. Yeah. And so he is from Durango and um, you guys started this project in Durango on his land um, and co combined efforts to help to build the vinata there and to produce mezcal from agaves indigenous to the region of, of uh, Durango, excuse me. Um, so do you want to give us a little bit of information about how that project is going? And actually, what year did you guys start it? Okay. Uh, about the last one, we start to talk about that in, 2000, in the end of 2014. 
and we finally start to produce in 2015. Okay. Yes. And how has the project evolved since then? Because it's been five years now. Okay. Uh, yes. When we start to um, to talk about that was because it was an invitation from Bildo. Bildo was already over imported in Australia since 2013. Uh, he he was already um, very involved with our brands in those days, representing uh, all our mezcales, but he was also representing with passion the culture that was behind everything that we was doing, all the passion that we used to uh, share with him. He, he went many times to Oaxaca, to, my, to the towns, to my family, and he really believed in everything that we was doing. So he, in his words, he told us that he found a way to represent Mexico with proud in Australia, living in a, in, in a country that was really far away. So for his own circumstances, for circumstances of the life, he had to back to Durango. Uh, he had to, to lose everything that he was doing in Australia. So he invited us, he, he, he told us as well, like very straight that, hey guys, I've been always thinking in one day I will do something with the agaves that I have in my, in my cattle ranch. And, and now I know what I actually want to do. And I want to have mezcal with you guys. And he told us like, you know, like here in Durango, they produce mezcal, but I found something with you guys that I didn't found, found with nobody else. And if I want to do mezcal, it has to be with you guys. If not, it's not going to happen. So we visited him. We went to the rancho and we started to talk. It was not a easy decision. It was not something that we say, yes, we want to do it. It was something that we have to think a lot because, of course, Durango is in, in the north of Mexico. It's not really close to Oaxaca. But in the end, it was that energy and, that was, and it was that philosophy that came together his family, uh, even his whole, his whole family was not involved in the beginning, but we had the chance to meet his family and the chance to have that relationship since the beginning to understand uh, why he wants to do it. But we also start to see something that we don't normally see in Oaxaca and is one of my dreams in the future to can really have in Oaxaca as a, as, a, as a something with respect to the nature and environment, we see the opportunity to can prove that we can produce mezcal by having respect to all the life around the agave in every different level. We had a chance to prove that we can always respect every single part of the process by doing something that we love and that we want to share with friends and family. So in this cattle ranch, the first impression, the f one of the first impression that I had and I remember was to see how much agave was there and how much agave was already castrate or without quiotes and drying and dying. So because of that, I was like asking like, why you guys cute the quiote if you don't produce mezcal. So when they told me that answer, yes, oh, what, what do you mean? Like, yes, why you cute the quiote? And they told me like, no, we are not curing the quiote. What do you mean? Like, this is because the carols and the venison or the deers coming to eat them when they're coming up. 
And it was not that many, you know, like it was a lot, yes, but the, the, the ranchos just have a lot of more agave. The, you can see that. And, and we found that there was like many agaves already dry, some other ones in like the last part of their life, some other ones in a young part of the life of, of capones. Anyway, we just found little by little, uh, and this is what's not since the beginning, but in all these last years, we found how to can really be just beyond sustainability. Like how we can really take these agaves, produce something that has this respect since the beginning and, and do something really beautiful. And can of you course, give us like a couple examples of what you've implemented or are planning to implement in that regard? Yeah, what we did, the, the first decision, and I will always uh, like to, to say, if, if you don't really have that respect and you don't really you understand that or what I'm talking about, and you see that you have the chance to produce a lot of agave, the first thing that comes to your mind can be probably, okay, let's build a huge factory to produce 100,000 liters per month <laughs> or something like that. And that's like a very capitalist way to see it, right? And it probably can work, yes. But at what point? At which cost? You, you, you have to kill all the environment. You have to harvest all the cabbages and you... You can, and and it's gonna be something that is gonna last for a very little time. You're gonna make a lot of money, but it's not gonna be something sustainable and and something. The profit is gonna be one time deal, and you're not gonna be able to maintain the the growth of the agave the way that is doing it right now. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you can probably do it if you start to plant it and just have a, a, a plan to do it. You know. Yeah. But in the end, that's not the that's not the reasons why we produce mezcal. I come from a family where respect is very strong and where the culture and, and the reasons, the, the main reasons why we produce mezcal are very strong. And we want to share something beautiful and we want to share something that comes from that land, something from that comes from that unique area where seriously, when you will come there, it's so beautiful, all that vegetation and all that environment that just live together with the bears and the animals and rabbits, foxes and Everything they are just there, like bats and the volcanic stones everywhere. How the agaves dealing to 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 grow up and basically uh, fighting with the big nopales and yucas and sotoles and mesquites because they are just competing to grow as a wild plants. And we want to actually respect that. And Bildo and his family there was doing that. By, by, by many years, by having a control by Semarnat, by having a, a registration to care of all the life, the wildlife. And, and that was the first thing that we say, oh, you're already doing that. We so Semarnat, just, just for the people that they don't know, Semarnat is a secretaria. Do you know the, the, the acronym? It's like, what, what, what does Semarnat represent? It's a, it's a government, it's a government organization. Uh, organization. Right, it's a government uh, organization, yes, in the country that protect uh, different ecosystems in the country or wildlife. There is a, re a registro we call UMA, UMA. Uh, we have this register in the rancho that basically it's a register to protect the wildlife of everything that is there, uh, as a plants, as a animals, as a bears, as a ecosystem, basically. So we we was just 
there was just many different messages and things that just told us, okay, we're going to do something. If we're going to do something here, it has to be in the right way. It has to be something that can give you give us to an, another level of awareness for where we want to go in, in the future, what we are seeing in the future for Oaxaca as well, having a much respect. You saw the possibility to, because you were starting something from scratch to be able to do it um, in in the way in which you felt was the the, the best possible um, result for the product, for the people consuming it, and most importantly for like the land and the environment. Would you say? Yes, yes. What when you when you ask me like what we implement? I think we we basically we have to realize that we can do a lot of more things to protect that and to give to the land what the lands need. Know what we think the lands need, what the actual lands need. You're also doing this in a long-term vision. You're not doing this as a short-term uh, you know, action and respond. Like, I do this, it changes, and that's it. You're, you're being able to see that the more years that you prolong these kind of actions, the healthier than 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 the 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 healthier the the environment and the healthier than the ranch and the healthier the business will become in sustainability in some way or form. You you actually mentioned something really beautiful, uh, something that we start to see in the last year and this year, and the last time like one month ago that I was in the rancho with Bildo, we was talking about it like how beautiful and how how beautiful the lands and the earth works then today we just have more. As more we care of the land, the most the, the land gives us to us. It's giving you back. It's giving yeah. you back. And, and it's more and more. Uh, of course, we since the beginning, we decide to do this as a long term, of course. We never feel a pressure to do something. Even we we have the most agave that we have is an ISO. We know that there is also Sotol. We know that there is also another type of agaves. In another ranch, the, it's part of the ranch, but it's in another location. It has another, another different ecosystem, another different environment. There is another species of agave that we just started to produce a month ago. Even we know all that since the beginning, we know that we have to do everything step by step. You understand so, every single part before to do something. Semarnat is Secretary of Environment and Natural Resources. Uh, and I just want to say this back because does any of these programs applies to Oaxaca? Nothing that I see yet. Okay. And and we're just going to keep it there because obviously yeah. there's that will be a, a, a three, four hour conversation of just brainstorming of the beauty of implementing something this amazing in Oaxaca uh, that is very much needed most likely. But is ha, knowing that it does exist in Mexico as a country and that Semarnat has the capability to do these kind of programs, I think is a very important thing to just people to know about. Yeah, and maybe I'll cut that in, actually. Um, yeah. But something that I, I think makes sense uh, to, to speak about is that while you guys are experiencing now five years out with Origen, the 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 beauty of what you're starting to build and see and see the repercussions um, come into place. Um, I also wanted to let our listeners know that while you have been you have been in very close proximity and directly working on the production um, of 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 the mezcal, you have also on the other side 
been involved with hospitality and the public, right? And yeah. and a lot of um, a lot of uh, international visitors coming to Oaxaca, and you've been really instrumental in in interacting in that space as well. So you're on the palenques, in the vinatas, out in the land, but you're also very much keeping your finger on the pulse of, of what the consumers are doing and how that behavior is changing. So at saying that, I think I'd like to just mention to people that around, I think you said like 2013, 2014, you initiated some projects and more collaborations uh, with other with other friends. So there's uh, there was well, there was and there is Boro Boro, which originally acted as a vehicle for you to do uh, tours around the region of mezcal producers um, for folks. Mm -hmm. And then you also had uh, Mezcalogia, which was a watering hole, a bar um, that does still exist, uh, but you are a founder of that. And recently you have, um, you have renovated and um, are running uh, Ofrenda, which is a um, hotel kind of bed and breakfast situation in Oaxaca. It's more and house, yes. More house, yeah. And 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 then on top of that, there's another bar in the making, right? And on top of that, throughout this entire time, you've also been maintaining your design practice, um, the agency Stratos, which is like a branding agency. Mm-hmm. Just to let people know, you know, there's just some of the things you're doing. Just to let people know that Aziz Cortez has been very bored through the whole pandemic in Mexico. He had <laughs> nothing to do. And, uh, you know, he's, he's just using his time, zooming around, talking about things. Watching Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> Watching Netflix. And I, and I say all of this um, be, because it's, it's part of your history and it's all of the things that you're working on. But as we are transitioning to talking about the newest project of, of yours and your father's, um, I think it's important for us to get a good understanding that, you know, you're, you're focused on many different things and you're seeing it, I think, from many different perspectives. And that comes back to what we had talked about is like, what are the different practices in your life? And I would say like design, hospitality, obviously mezcal, you know, a, a bit of farming and forestry involved in that and like the social fabric and um, the traditional aspects of your culture all kind of wrapped up into this like experience that we're having with you speaking now. And so with that said, um, the latest project, uh, which is Dish Bay, um, and the best way that I can describe it, and then we'll talk about it more, is a new project, a new mezcal project uh, with your father, Valentin, developed to honor your ancestors and preserve the connection between the Maguey and your culture. Mm -hmm. So after doing these other brands and these other projects, you've come to Dishbe. Mm -hmm. Yes. I, I think a really good starting place is the word itself, because I know it's very meaningful for you. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think I found a formula to have couple clones in around <laughs> to help me. Uh, but, how, how so? <laughs> <laughs> no, just joking. Uh, I think I've been very lucky uh, to to have a lot of friends and family, of course, um, together with the same energy to 
really collaborate in creating a lot of things together. Uh, all the things that you mentioned, I will never make it all of them by myself, just by myself. That will never happen. Uh, but I've been that lucky that, that I've been that I'm part of a family that are mescaleros, and they have that passion, and that we together find a way to collaborate in, in, in different ways to make things happening. I've been also very lucky that I, I had a chance to travel a lot in the last, I would say, probably 10 years, 12 years now. Uh, but I start to travel a lot. And, and because my travels, I also uh, been making a lot of friends and family. I was actually sitting I was sitting in San Francisco in a bar with Eric, who is my partner and a friend, uh, one day in 2012. And after talking and seeing on the back, like a group of like 12 or 15 really good friends of us, and having a mezcal in the hand, I remember that moment that we was looking at that situation, and immediately we say, mezcal makes big families. Yeah. And, and that's been like, all my, my, my entire last years. So I, I've been looking to, to can say that, yes, I have a huge family in the world. And like all that just coming together makes me have, or makes me be happy to can give them a space and open the doors for them and say, hey, welcome to Oaxaca. Like You know, we can, there has been this amazing part of, of, of the, the, just probably, our our life intertwining in so many different levels, but uh, I have heard this this line being said, and I I took it by heart, and I I make it my own, and it's gente buena haciendo las cosas bien, mm -hmm. so good people doing the right thing, and I think everybody that has been connected in some way or form through this kind of mezcal family because it's it's just i think it's bigger than just us it's bigger than just oaxaca it's big, like it's, it's it's growing in such a manner that uh, talking to brands collaborating with brands it doesn't have to be only one thing it's not only one mezcal it's like it's this bigger family of collaboration that is is such is such an amazing thing like and and this bag with with your dad with your is like it it looks like the perfect evolution of Aziz Cortez as a man and, and going through all the stepping stepping stones that you had to have in order to understand what that one project is going to be for you. You know, exactly. it's, it's, it's very, we talk about all this prior talking to you in, in a, just, you know, goofing around Sabrina and I, and, and I touch exactly what you just said, like you're traveling, going out and seeing the world in a different way because you're still Zapoteco. You're still coming back to Matatlan. You still have uh, a beautiful wife that is your partner in crime that does a lot of work with you. Like we haven't mentioned her, but she has been on the background on all this, like the same way that I don't do things alone. And I know that my backbone and her backbone are mutual. Sabrina and I, we work in, in, a, in a such a combined way of collaboration that- Yeah. So hold, I on, know... hold on, guys. We got a shout out to Mar. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, because, you yeah. know, we're talking about all this and, and, you know, we could probably have Mars sitting next to us and he will she will correct us and correct you and correct and, and, and just have that other input of we having the Asis Cortez single line, but there's 
there's multiple elements in there. Exactly. That is pretty beautiful. You are absolutely right. Uh, yes. Yes, as I say, nothing that I've been doing, it would make just by myself. But it, I've been so lucky that I have a lot of, a lot of friends and a beautiful family. And of course, my wife, they've been supporting me. They've been helping me. They've been on my side. They're they believing in the dreams that we have together, that we're creating a lot of beautiful things. And, and that's exactly where we're going at this point, Tishbe. Uh, yes, Tishbe, it's... I, I didn't see it in that way, Gabriel. I didn't see it in the way of an evolution. But now that you mention it, it probably that's the way, because for one reason, I was just seeing a way of back to the past. For one reason, you know, like uh, I was seeing after everything that I've been involved with, it, it's something that is being with us all in all our life as a word, as a supportive word, represents totally different situations where we show respect, we show gratitude to, to people, to spirits, to the ancestors, to the mother earth, to the gods. But at the same time, we show love. We show everything with a lot of humble and, and we are in a, in a mood where everything is very serious, very deep. And I've been seeing in, in that mood to my entire family, to my grandmother, to my grandfather, to my mom, to my, to my dad, to, to everybody. When we really come to this, it's, it's a ritual. It's something deep and unique when we say Tishbe, because we are putting out that feelings. And all the times that we do that, it's always with a glass of mezcal. So it's just strongly connected with the culture, with the people, with respect, with love, gratitude, and mezcal, and with what I've been doing in the last years. So for me, having the chance and having this gift of Starting something again with my dad, and it's going to call this way, it is just more responsibilities. We yes. have to honor not just the culture, but also the word, also what everything is around, also what we believe and what we've been doing. And we have to, in, in, in some way, that's why I was saying that we, I, I was thinking that we went to the past, is because we want to go to the point where we believe the mezcal start to come back in the way that has to be respected, in the way that was before with our ancestors and with the people who today there is still around. There is still some mezcaleros in some villages in Mexico. There is still some people that are still doing mezcal in this way, as my dad. And we just want to be strong with this. We don't want to you know, go it's, in it's, different it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful full circle. That's that's the other that's the other way of seeing this. That is is, if as a graphic, you know, full circle. You're back into the 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 initial thought of what mezcal, what you believe personally, and 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 collectively to be mezcal. But there's one thing that is different. You are a grown as adult in 2020 in a global market you have traveled the world you know how it looks like what they look what they want what they feel what they taste and now you're the new mezcalero you're the new 
a point of the arrow of of a new thought of what mezcal will be now. You know, it's like you, you have been able to honor your ancestors, you have been honoring the land, you have been honoring the process. And but but the world is open. It wasn't. Like when 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 I'm I'm just remembering you saying, you know, the routes were very specific and each family have their own single route. And they know each other and then this route shouldn't cross because, you know, out of respect, you're doing business here, so I'm doing business here. But now this is this is a new, a completely new entire world round route that we can walk, that we can that we can travel and, and access. And and that's something that was never available for them. So the full circle does the appreciation, the full thing circle does the understanding of, of the culture and the and the heart of the mezcal in their score. But now we have a, a beautiful responsibility as as you were saying with Durango of 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 doing a long term vision and applying it truly with the character and the and the, the honor system that we're trying to talk. Yeah. So how how is this uh, looking right now for for Dishbe? Like what what are you guys doing either in addition, differently because of, you know, all of those things? Yeah, I think for that, we need a really long conversation and I'm happy with. Um, but I can I know that we don't have a lot of time, so I have to, to, to mention a couple of points. I think that one of the most important is that we are not looking to do something different. We are just looking to, to do exactly the way it has to be. If we have, as a, as a family, and by learning from my dad, the mezcal needs to have a reason. It has to needs to have a, the sense, the reason why he produced mezcal. And the main reason is because I would say it's because we want to do something that we want to enjoy at the same time that we are sharing because the mezcal is made for sure. I, I never had in my experience a moment when I opened a bottle of mezcal and pour a glass only for myself. I, I never did it. In, in all this time, and, and believe me, I've been drinking a lot of mezcal <laughs> many times. But every <laughs> single time is because I have a friend or a family or somebody who is next to me, and I'm going to do it because I want to share that. And if we can share the best from ourselves, that it's the main reason. So when we start to, 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 to work in this and when we start to basically... Uh, build this new brand, if we want to call it new brand, we realize that we are not doing something new. We realize that we basically are continuous doing in a very strongly way when we are going to be super strong and, and keep that for a long term again, for a really long term, where we know that this is what we want to keep continuing doing to honor the past. It can feel easy to talk about it, but it, it is actually a lot of responsibilities and a lot of things behind it. And one of the, the most beautiful things, and you say actually that, is it has to be personal. And Mezcal was for a long time personal. And I think that even today in 2020, with all the global access and everything, we still can do it personal. We still can do it in that way. And I'm not um, saying that I'm not agree with evolution and with the new techniques and, and all that. I'm 100% agree with all that because 
I mean, that's the way that it's been happening. And today with all the, the, the new tools and everything that we have, we just need to be careful to see how to have this evolution by having a respect for what we learned from the past. They're yeah. not just, just them right. changing. Yeah. And all that said, I think it's worth asking the question, um, you know, every everything that you have participated in has all been bottled as mezcal. Um, so why have you chosen to do it that way? I think it's the same kind of same answer. For me, since I remember, and for my dad and my grandfather and every single talk that they have, it's been always mezcal. It was never destilado de agave. It was always mezcal. And then when we, in 2000, in early 2000, we start to see how Mezcal lost, or, or actually Mezcal did a really bad reputation because adulterate Mezcales or products, uh, it was a really sad moment. It was really, really sad to listen to, from people to say, oh, Mezcal is really bad, it is a really shitty alcohol, and blah, blah, blah. And as you, Gabriel, says before, there, 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 everybody was right. That product that was called mezcal was really bad, but it was not mezcal. So we have to clean that. That was a big part of my work in the beginning, since 2008, 2009, 2010, 11, 12. Like for many years, I was every day like cleaning that because it was not easy. Every time that I tried to introduce mezcal someone, Everybody was like, no, I don't like mezcal. That's not good, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, give me a chance to give you a taste of mezcal. This is different. 90% of the people was telling me, no, I don't have time. And that little 10% was always surprised about, oh, which herbs How you amazing. added, which fruits you added, what you added. And I was like, no, this is 100% juice pure agave. It's, this is real mezcal. So, in the end, finally, with the CRM that started to operate in 2005 with uh, the tax government in Mexico, Hacienda, and Profeco, the, it's an organism in Mexico that cares about what you buy uh, in general. That the quality. A, the quality, and, but what you read in the label has to be actually what is in the product. They basically came together with a program in 2008, Around 2008, I don't have the specific date right now, but around 2008, they finally came to, to help us to clean that word mezcal. There was everything for us in my family. So little by little, in, by taking some of these bottles and giving it to the lab and sending a letter to the company by saying, your product is not mezcal, but you are using the word mezcal and you have to know that this word is protected now. And if you want to still sell in Mezcal, you have to register under the CRM, back in that day was called a Comercam, and you mm -hmm. have to follow the rules. That was, it basically means you have to produce Mezcal if you want to sell Mezcal. Without the NUM, you cannot enforce anything because it has to be a law to be able to enforce it. And exactly. you mentioned something about Profeco, and just for you know our American friends, is the Office of the Federal Prosecution for the Consumer. Mm -hmm. Like, if anything, and it's something very important to mention about Mexico, and it's, it's something that I learned 
uh, a couple of years ago when I was I was doing my master's. Mexico has the most amazing laws in paper. Like you read them and you it makes sense. Things are organized. Like there's 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 this thing that it like is not the lack of rules, is the lack of enforcement and the abuse of people of using and not not doing the rules as they they're there. So it's it's an interesting thing that we're talking about this because it's not that it's not it's not that they wasn't organized. It was not present and neither enforced. So by having a CRM, by having a Comercam, by having a Profeco by having a Semarnat in, in Durango. These are all just tools of keeping things in check. Okay. Right? Yeah, so you're right. Nothing was perfect, and I'm sure that nothing is still perfect. There is not a perfect world, of course, but when they started, it was a first step. It was yeah. a first way to finally take out the market all this adulterate product that was called mezcal. And because of that, and because the effort of many people, including me, that we was in the same timing, pushing mezcal, cleaning mezcal, everything just worked together to bring back the, to the category mezcal and something beautiful. But also because thanks to the mezcaleros that is still surviving in some places, and they still making some small batches of really good mezcales. Because of that, we came up and say, this is mezcal. This is the real mezcal. And we start to work together in that. And then you know the story. The boom of mezcal came. Everybody wants to do mezcal now. Everybody wants to back to produce mezcal. And, and it went out of control again a couple of years later. right? But in the end, it was something that we really did a lot of work to clean, to regulate. Even it's not perfect, but it was the only way to finally back again. And there's an evolution. It's evolution. You know, this, yes. is, this, is, this is not done. And it's important for people that when they're listeners talking about yes. complex thoughts like this, this is a very young uh, market. Uh, Mezcal has the best year last year of exporting and bringing, I think it's 60 or 70% to, to the export of, of Mezcal to the States. And that's a giant number. Yes. And and having having checks and balances as anything else, it has to do to keep things safe and keep things in order. Uh, because I wish, as you said, as is, there's not a person world and there's a lot of people doing shitty things. So... It's just a matter of, of keeping things in check and, and keeping it safe for everybody, you know, with, with, with understanding that there's a future that is better. Yes. So what happens in the moment in 2009, 2010, 2011, after kind of cleaning the market of, of that, like all that 90% of products that was there in the market, in the entire market, they changed the word mezcal in their labels and they start to put it destilado de agave or aguardiente de agave, what actually was another lie because it was not necessarily just destilado or aguardiente de agave. That's what happens. But at that point, I think that all the mezcaleros that we start to, to promote mezcal, we start to be focusing mezcal and we basically forget all that. What happened in the last years was that destilado de agave or aguardiente de agave that start to take another power in the market in a market that we was working really hard 
as a category, as a mezcal. And I know that most of these people who start to bring these products in the, in the same market, they bring in amazing mezcales, amazing, beautiful mezcales, because in the end, that's mezcal. It deserves that name because that's the way that the mezcalero call it. But they don't know the story behind it. They don't know what happens before. And, or they probably know, but they don't just don't care. Or they probably are very upset with the CRM because the, the CRM is probably not perfect. But I think that we are still a, such a small category and we have to be a strong in represent the category in the best way possible. That's why I'm still strong in that way. If I have the possibility to represent strongly the category as mezcal, I will do my best and I will be there and not just go away. And, you know, it's very simple to also say you're honoring, you're honoring generations of mezcaleros work in your family and pain that happened through the misuse of the world, the misuse of the procedures, the misuse of, of the materials. And, and, and it's a scary thought to just even like look back and knowing that a very, a very short memory has been kind of not being put in place of you guys need to remember that this was dangerous and regulations are not there to make work difficult is actually to protect the work of the people. Exactly. Exactly. And then going back to the other question, um, Yes, when COVID started, uh, we decided with my dad to present the brand in the middle of that. Uh, one thing, to be busy. <laughs> and the other one, to, to can help my dad also to start to move some of the mezcales that he was producing since the middle of 2018, when he stopped to produce for El Holgorio, and he started just to keep his mezcales at the house. And then we decide to, okay, we can start to present the brand, to talk about the brand, but, but that doesn't mean that we are launching the brand. We just start to present the brand. We just start to talk a little bit about what is coming. So, so we uh, decide to do this uh, future mezcales, to, to cancel it, to support us uh, by can pick up the bottles later in Oaxaca. Or if you have an address in Mexico, we can send it easier to that address in Mexico. And that's what has been happening in the last, uh, in the last months, actually. Uh, a lot of friends and a lot of close friends that they've been buying the bottles. Uh, some of them still waiting to when they come to pick up the bottles. Some other ones are just sending me some Mexico's, or in Mexico address, and I've been send, sending those bottles. So that's something that we, we started. We present nine different expressions of the first edition. And so far, uh, seven of them are sold out. Oh. There is still two expressions of the first edition. There is Espadín and Coyote available. And then Beautiful. we present another five different expressions of the second edition that is still available. Uh, there is Espadín, Tepestate, Madre Cuiche, Cuiche, and Pechuga. So how, how big are your batches? We started very small, especially the first edition was really, really small. Because even like the average of size of the mezcales from my dad, it's around 300 liters, 400 liters, more or less. It depends on agave. Some agaves are only 150, yeah. or some other ones can be 800. But even that is the average size. 
since 2018 that we just keep those mezcales in the house. We've been receiving a lot of friends in Oaxaca and a lot of friends to my parents' house. We've been drinking a lot of those mezcales, a lot. So then when we decided to bottle them, we was like, oh, that's a surprise. We only have five go? liters. Then. We don't have a lot of those mezcales yet, but we have like 40 liters here, 30 liters of these, 50 liters of this other one. So, okay, we're going to bottle those ones. And that's what we Beautiful. did. So that was pretty small. So the second round, the second edition, there was some batches of them also already that we shared. So that was not, not those big, but there was a couple that was a little bit bigger, like 190 bottles, 180 bottles. Not, I mean, they're still super small. And, but I can say the average size is going to be around 300 to 400 liters every time. All produced, all produced um, by your father? All the ones that we decide to bottle, yes, they're all by my dad, uh, by my father. And we, the plan that we had since the beginning was to launch Tishbe by the end of this year. But how the things are, we, we just move into the beginning of next year. So I, I'm going to give more details in the, in, in the coming months. But for right now, we are just available here in Oaxaca. And, and yes, we, we've been doing a lot of uh, sessions to talk about mezcal, to talk about the category. I've been very active with a lot of different relationships, different friends, like doing this. And I'm, I'm going to still doing that. And you also, I remember we were talking earlier and you were saying how um, you plan on working more closely with your dad. Yes. Like hands-on closely, right? Yes, absolutely. I think that I um, I grew up having this straight, direct connection. You know, like I, I remember like as a child, as I say before, uh, all these memories are being very strong in my life. And all the last years that I've been very active on promoting mezcal, talking about mezcal, being out of, like, it's been, like, still very connected with my family, with my dad, because I've been representing them. But at the same time, every time that I'm there talking about everything that I know and having the chance to also meet a lot of mezcaleros, not just in Oaxaca, but also in all the country, and, and, and being there and tasting and, and, and see them work, it's been just that that energy that just trying to take me to there and say like, hey, you need to put your hands there. You need to work there. And I've been with this in the last probably two years more strongly. And I, I was trying to find those times, those days that I can be there. It's been not easy because I've been involved in many different things and, and, and my time is really busy. But every time that I find those days, it's just like a dream, just to be available to be there with my dad, doing something with him side by side, not just like helping, but like working, like really working. It, it's really beautiful. I remember like one day he he mentioned me like, uh, okay, tomorrow we're going to take all the huelos in the fields. Uh, he told me actually like in two or three days, we're going to go there. And I told him, yes, I, I'm going with you. So the night before he told me, as is, we are not going to do it. Uh, the guys there is going to come to help us. They can't come to help us. And I was like, yes, but I'm going to help you. And he was like, no, it's, we have to go very early and we are going to... And you're not used to that. We're going to spend all day <laughs> doing that. Exactly. And I was like, yes, that, that, that's what I want to do. Yeah, let's go. It was like, okay, are you sure? Yes. We did it. We did all the long day. Mar actually 
was like, I want to go as well. I want to help. And Mar also did it. She she was there and and we did it. And I was very happy, you know, like uh, all that. It's something that I'm looking to can do more in a more proper time in my future. That direct connection, you know, with the land, right? With 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 all of the the family members that have come before you. Um, it's it's the the concept of that is overwhelming for those of us that maybe don't have such like a, a rich cultural heritage within our family that we know of. And to have that knowledge and to continue the propagation of that knowledge and to share your experience with us, um, it's a really great privilege for all of us to know you. Thank you. I'd like to say that. <laughs> oh, thank you. And the privilege is mine to, to can really have the chance to share a little bit of that story that we have. And I'm, I'm really glad with you guys. Thank you. So, well, thank you. Um, how can people um, learn about the different like educational um, conversations that you're having? Uh, like, I don't know if it's through Zoom or remotely now. Like, how, how can they learn about these and maybe participate? At this moment, I've been doing this very uh, personal. I didn't really make it very public. So I, I, I've been having like friends that have been helping to organize and host small groups. And I'm planning to do another one on the third week of this month. So if someone wants to actually uh, be part of this or want to create a group, uh, I'm more open to, to please, if you want to text me, send me a message in any different way, I think at this moment it's very easy to reach out with, with me in any different way. So uh, you can find my, my number, my email, or my social yeah. media. And anyway, and I would be very happy to can... Uh, plan something to do it. As I say, in the third week of this month, I'm planning a week of like these talks in, in a more you, private you way. Are behind, you are behind the Instagram accounts, right? I am, yes. I do. So if somebody if somebody sends you a DM through Instagram, you will see it. Yes, absolutely. Okay. I, I am behind. And also, I mean, everybody that listens, I think you guys know this already, but it's worth mentioning. Um, you know, we will post uh, all of the links um on our website, including some pictures from Assis of, uh, you know, just just everything that we've been talking about. So um, look out for that. I also wanted to mention um, right now that there was a wonderful, wonderful article that Mescalistas uh, just published that um, covers, uh, you know, the, a lot of the same topics that we've discussed, but goes into detail um, in different ways. So I will be posting a link to that as well. Max wrote that article and it was just really fantastic. So um, if you guys are interested in learning more about Assis, that's a really great place to look to. Um, as always, Mescalistas produces really wonderful content. Um, so Assis, this was a great first conversation. I know that it will not be our last with you. And I just really am so grateful um, that you agreed to do this with us. And I'm really excited to post this. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Thanks, everybody, for listening. And yes, I, I can't wait to, to keep talking about what is coming next. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure that we um, catch up with you in the new year and see how everything is going with all of us. <laughs> okay, guys, take care. Please all right. be safe. All right. Salut, Sita. Hey, Hey, Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lazard. 
Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salucita.